How is everybody? Doing great, doing great. My name is Dave, and it is so good to be here with you and live. If you're joining us, if you're in Blend, you're in Amped, uh, good to see you guys. Uh, Roan County, Bearden, great to be with you as well. We are going to be in Genesis 37 today, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn that on if you're using your phone or open it up, whatever you got. Genesis chapter 37. We've been in a series called Building Faith. And what we've seen as we've been walking through Genesis is that God takes people on journeys and he builds faith over time. And in a world that loves instant, building faith over time is not a very popular idea. I mean, think about the instants that we have in this world. We have instant coffee. And I'm not talking like, remember the old instant coffee where it was like, it was like a little packet and you peeled it and you kind of... I'm saying we've got a lot more sophisticated with our instant coffee. Now we call it a Keurig and we use K-cups. That's instant coffee. And I remember when those things were coming out, somebody's like, oh, it's the best coffee. And now I'm like, they lied to me. It is not the best coffee. It is coffee, and it's fine, but it's not the best. And so we got instant coffee in K-Cups. And if peanut butter and jelly sandwiches were not easy enough, we went instant with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And if you're a parent, you know about this. Because here's the thing. Kids don't like crust on their sandwiches. Somehow it's like the worst part of the bread and so what did a company do? They said, hey, we need something a little quicker, a little faster, a little more instant. So let's make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to pre-cut the cost off them. We're going to individually pack them. And let's see, a marketing genius came up with a name. We'll call them Uncrustables. That's what we'll call them. A peanut butter and jelly sandwich that's instant because it wasn't fast enough before. And so it's not very popular in a world of instant coffee and instant peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that we come along and God says, hey, I want to bring you on a journey. I want to take you on a journey and I want to grow your faith over time. And we're going, no, no, no. Like, can we have the fast track version of it? Can we have the Cliff Notes version of it? Can we do it short? Can we do it sweet? And God's going, no, no, no. I like journeys. And in fact, the guy that we're going to be looking at, Joseph, this morning is another one of those guys that went on a journey and it's one of those stories where you read about Joseph and you go, man, this doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem right. And here's the big idea that we're going to see as we study today is that our faith is built when we can't see the next step. Our faith is built when we can't see the next step step. A lot of the characters that we've been looking at, and I want to start just as we, just as a reminder, once again, our goal is never to become, like we're looking at Joseph today, the goal is never to be like, I want to be like Joseph. The goal is never to be like, I want to be like Abraham. No, the goal is, is that we learn about the character of God as we see these characters interact with God. So if you walk away today going, I want to be more like Joseph today, we missed it. The goal is to go, oh, that's what's pleasing to God, and I want to please God in my life and in my situation and in my story. But I think there are a lot of times in Joseph's life that he probably asked that question, God, do you really know what you're doing? Have you ever been in those situations where you're like, God, 
I know you're like sovereign and I, and I know those big words about you, but do you really know what you're doing? I know I've been in those places in my life. And here's the truth. That doesn't sound, that question, God, do you really know what you're doing? It doesn't sound very spiritual, does it? Like if somebody called me and was like, hey, and this is what we do in spiritual talk sometimes. Hey, Brother Dave, like, how was your time with the Word of God this morning? If I actually said to them, uh, well, I actually, I was questioning God whether he actually knew what he was doing today. And if I told that to somebody, they'd be like, oh, <laughs> you okay? Everything okay? But sometimes we ask that question, and why is that a fair question? Because that question stems from relationship. God, I'm doing my best to follow you. God, I'm doing my best. I'm doing a phrase we use around here. I'm doing all that I know to do, and yet it doesn't seem like you're holding up your end of the bargain. God, do you really know what you are doing? And I think Joseph asks that question a lot. Now, as we look at Joseph, here's what we're not. You might have heard messages about Joseph before. Is, is everyone familiar with Joseph? I mean, Joseph is a known character, so much so that Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote a musical, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, so people are like, oh yeah, we know Joseph. And you might have heard stories around Joseph, maybe connected to Jacob, and so there's parenting sermons on like, hey parents, don't choose a favorite kid, that's just bad, okay? And so, because the other siblings hate them. And so it just creates tension in the family. And so you may have heard sermons like that. You may have heard sermons from Genesis 39, where we're going to be today, where it's like, how do six steps to avoiding sexual immorality. And it's like, those may be good, but once again, we're not here to analyze the character of Joseph. We're here to learn about who God is and how God is advancing God's story forward. And it just happens to be in the life of a guy named Joseph. Make sense of where we're going? All right, Genesis chapter 37. If you have your Bibles, go ahead, and we're going to start there. Genesis 37, verse 1. It says, Jacob, who's Joseph's dad, lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Once again, this is one of those markers through the book of Genesis where the generations, that's how the book is broken down. And then it says, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, which is another name for Jacob, Jacob's name has been changed at this point. He's wrestled with God, and God changed his name to Israel. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now I want to pause here for a second. It's very known, like Joseph in the coat of many colors. I mean, it's on the flannel graphs if you've grown up in church. It's, it's in the musical of Andrew Lloyd Webber. And as I was reading about that this week, there's actually a good possibility that it wasn't like this beautiful coat of many colors. And actually, a better translation could be the fact that it was a distinguished robe, a long sleeve distinguished robe, indicating favorites, indicating that he had found 
favor. So it may not have been like the beautiful striped coat that we've all seen pictures of. It may have just been a distinguished long robe. And one commentator wrote this, it became very clear and very evident that Joseph was a favorite and that he was management and not a day laborer. And that's exactly, if you look in the context of what happened, what did he do? He came back and reported to his fathers about what his brothers labor. Why? Because he might have been management over them. And he gives a bad report. So the coat is a distinguishing feature. Don't get caught on the fact that it was a coat of many colors. Get caught on the fact that Joseph is management and everyone else is a day laborer. Verse 5. No, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream I've had. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. I can almost hear him be like, isn't that incredible? Mine stood up, and guess what? Brothers, guess what yours did? And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to mine. Isn't that awesome? And his brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And so here's the thing that we see about Joseph is that Joseph, we don't don't get the picture of Joseph through this passage that somehow Joseph was like this bad dude, this sinner, right? Jacob, on the other hand, Jacob was like cheating and swindling things. And so we get this picture of Jacob like, God, you got to do some work in, in Jacob's heart. But Joseph, it seems like he seems to be a good dude, but he doesn't have any tact at all, does he? So he tells his brothers this dream that he has. Then, verse 9, as if he didn't learn the first time, Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers. And he said, behold, I've dreamed another dream. Can you imagine the brothers at this point? They're like, tell us. Tell us now, favorite, right? Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to little old me. Who knew? But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So Joseph didn't learn. He's like, I dreamed again. Here's the thing. Maybe, maybe here's a side point. Just because God reveals something to you doesn't mean you need to share it. Okay, maybe sometime God reveals something to you and you're like, maybe I'll hold on to that one. But he shares with his brothers and his father rebukes him. His father's like, seriously, seriously, Joseph, I'm going to bow down to you. But what's fascinating is that that passage right there in verse 11 ends with, and the father kept the saying in mind, it reminds me of Mary in the New Testament. Mary gave birth to Jesus, and there's these people that come and talk about Jesus and, how, and what he's going to do, and it says Mary treasured these things up in her heart. It's almost like she was like, I'm hanging on to these for later. And so you have Jacob knowing that God's probably doing something in the midst of this dream, and it says he's remembering these things. So here's Joseph, hated by his brothers, and the story continues in verse 12. Now his brothers went to the pasture, their father's flock, near Shechem. 
Shechem would have been about 40, 50 miles away from where they were staying. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'm going to send you to them. And so that's essentially what happens. And so Joseph goes and he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem in verse 15. And a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? Verse 18, I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now, I want to pause here for a second. I know there's a lot of scripture reading today, but I want us to notice something. If you ever question whether God is sovereign, whether God is absolutely in control, whether God knows the next steps or not, this is evidence right here. We're introduced to a character in Shechem who happens to find Joseph randomly wandering around Shechem. We don't know who this guy is. He shows up on the scene just randomly, not randomly, why? Because God was orchestrating this whole thing, and Joseph interacts with him, and this guy that Joseph is interacting with happened to hear where the brothers went. They went to Dothan, which was about five miles away. Joseph wouldn't have found him. Joseph traveled 40, 50 miles to Shechem, and he finds a guy, the only guy there in the area, and the guy says, actually, I do know where your brothers went. I overheard him talking. They went to Dothan. God was orchestrating this whole thing. God was orchestrating where Joseph was to go. It says this. Now his brothers, uh, where am I? They saw him from afar, verse 18. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. And now they said, come now, let us kill him. Throw him into one of the pits, and, and we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him. We'll see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben, the oldest, heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let's not take his life. Like, calm down. Let's not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit um, here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand, restore him to his father. Reuben was thinking, okay, we're not going to kill him. Reuben's trying to find favor in the eyes of his father. I mean, he's the oldest, and he's sitting there going, I should be the favored son. I should be the one. And so he's going, I got to find a way to find favor in my father's eyes. So he says to his brothers, we're not going to kill him. Let's throw him in this pit. Now, you got to understand something about the pit. In Israel, there's not much rain. And so the rainy season is only about three months in Israel. And so what they did in ancient times is if you've been to Israel, they would burrow these caves under the ground. They were essentially these caves, and they would put a hole to the opening of this cave at the surface of the ground, and they would burrow it underground. And what would happen is when the rainy season came, the water would run, and it would flow into these cisterns, they were called, and they would store the water underground because it was cooler, it wouldn't evaporate as fast. And so in the dry months, they would be able to have water. And so here was a cistern that was dried up. It was no longer in use. Now, I've been in one of these cisterns in Israel. If you're in one of these cisterns, you're stuck. You're not getting back out. These things were deep. It was smooth walls. There's no, if Joseph was in a cistern, the brother's not getting back out. And so they said, hey, we're not going to kill him. Let's throw him into one of these pits. And Reuben's going, I'm going to go back later, and I'm going to get Joseph out, and I'll receive favor from my father. 
Verse 25, they threw him in the cistern, and then they sat down to eat. That's so funny to me. They're like, hey, let's throw Joseph. You guys hungry? You guys want lunch? Let's eat. And so, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way down to Egypt. And Judah said to one of his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not his let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. And if you skip all the way down to verse 36, meanwhile, the Midianites, they traveled down to Egypt, had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So we have this story. We have this story where Joseph is thrown into a pit and his brothers are having lunch and, and Judah comes up with an idea. And what's fascinating is that Judah, uh, his descendants become Jesus. So here's Judah and he's like, I got an idea. Let's not kill him. Let's take him out of the pit. We might as well make a little money. And so they sell him for 20 shekels of silver to a traveling caravan that was heading down to Egypt. And so they sell him, and what do they do? They take his coat, his distinguished coat, they rip it up, they put blood all over it from an, from an animal, and they go back to their father, and they're like, Dad, we just found this coat. We had, it's, and, and Jacob's going, that's my son. And they're like, oh, we're so sorry. They tried to console Jacob, and Jacob wouldn't be consoled. But here's Joseph, a guy that you talk about like a string of bad things happening to him. It was Joseph. But I want us to notice something about Joseph that was pleasing to God. Is that faith requires trusting God in the moment. Faith requires trusting God in the moments. Now think about life for a second. All life is, is a string of moments that piggyback off each other. We are currently in a moment right now. After this moment that we call being together as a church, you are going to go to the next moment, which might include lunch. And some of you are going, yeah, speed it up. We need to get to, we, we got to beat the Baptist to lunch, you know. And so how do we speed this thing up? Let's go. And so we live moments and, and those moments piggybacking off each other become what? An hour. And then an hour and those moments string together and they become a day and a day becomes a week and weeks become months and months become years and years become a lifetime. It's a lifetime of moments that just string back to back to back to back. And here's what God is asking us in the midst of the moments. He's going, I want you to be faithful in each and every moment that you find yourself in. Because here's what we see in Joseph, that Joseph had moments where things were going incredibly bad. If you think you've had a bad day, when's the last time you've been sold into slavery? You see, Joseph had incredibly bad things happening to him. And it wasn't his fault. It wasn't earned. It wasn't deserved. His brothers hated him. They threw him into a pit. They sold him into slavery. And now he's on a caravan going to Egypt. And once again, he gets to Egypt and he's sold again. In his perspective, he had to have been asking the question, God, do you really know what you're doing? But here's what we don't get from Joseph. We don't get him turning bitter in the midst of it. 
And in the moments when things are hard, in the moments when things were tough, in the moments when he's questioning, he doesn't turn against God. In fact, he trusts God in the midst of it. While we in this room may not physically be trapped in a pit, I know in a room this size, online, and all the other venues, I know there's some of you out there that are going, I'm not physically in a pit, but I'm trapped in a job that I hate. It's a dead-end job, and I feel stuck, and I don't know what to do. And some of you are in a relationship that you go, I think God called me into this relationship, and I think, God, you blessed it, but now I feel like I'm in a relationship that is dead, and I don't know what to do in the midst of it. And friend, in the midst of it, what we do is we seek God and we remain faithful even in the midst of the brokenness. The story kind of takes a turn here in Genesis chapter 38. We're actually going to skip it because it's not that important. No, I'm just kidding. It is important. It's, it's scripture. Um, and I'm actually going to have you read it as part of the next step this week, okay, is to read this. It's about Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar, and this kind of stuff. And it's really trippy weird. But something I want you to pay attention, even through this section, as you read Genesis 38 this week, I want you to notice the importance of cloaks as we move through these passages and the important and distinguishing identifying characteristics of cloaks in these passages. So we don't have time to run through Genesis 38. So we're going to continue with Joseph in Genesis chapter 39. So go ahead, skip over 38. We're going to 39. Genesis 37 ended the way of saying, hey, Joseph was sold to Potiphar. And we pick up in 39 verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. Now that's a distinguishing thing that runs through this story. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of the Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so the story continues, right? Uh, Potiphar sees Joseph, and, and Joseph is doing incredible things. And in fact, Potiphar is being blessed because Joseph is in his house. His fields are succeeding. His household is succeeding. God is blessing Joseph in the midst of it. And I think Joseph is probably going, I'm not home with my family, but things are looking up for me. Things are turning out okay. Then we get to the end of verse 6. Now Joseph, and I love, I love when the Bible's descriptive. Do you remember back to Abraham, how it describes him? Now Abraham was old. <laughs> That's how it describes him. We get to Joseph. Now Joseph was handsome. And I love this, and I don't know the difference in form and appearance. It's like, wow, Joseph must have been a stunner, right? It was like, even the dudes are getting, sitting there going, yeah, that's a good-looking brother right there. And, and, and uh, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said to him, lie with me. And so here's the thing. Joseph is growing in rank. In fact, Potiphar had put him in charge of everything. I mean, 
The, the household was in order. Joseph is in charge of everything. And Potiphar's wife's like, hmm, that's nice. I want that. And so she goes after that. And Joseph repeatedly tells her, no. And he tells her, he's like, listen, my master's put me in charge of everything. In fact, no one is greater in the household than me. And he, the only thing he's kept back from me is you. And Joseph says, I'm not going to sin against God by doing something like that. And yet Potiphar's wife doesn't get the clue. And we get to verse 11. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice, and as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. So she traps him, grabs him by the robe. Joseph has his running shoes on. He's like, I'm out. And he takes off, runs out of there. And she's like, what do I do now? So she screams. The servants come back in the house. And she's like, look at, and this is fascinating. Do you see what Potiphar's wife does? She blames Potiphar. Do you see that? She's like, do you see? He brought this person, this Hebrew into our house. And then Potiphar comes home and she tells Potiphar the same story. This Hebrew that you brought into the house, guess what he did? He came in to try to lie with me. I screamed, he left his cloak. Verse 19, and as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But once again, verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison, this is fascinating, put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who was in prison. So a prisoner is in charge of the prisoners. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And so, Joseph, things are looking up for him. And then what happens? He's accused of rape. Now, I want us to notice something here. I don't think Potiphar actually believed his wife. It says his anger was kindled. And so Potiphar gets angry. If he actually believed that Joseph was trying to be with his wife, you know what he would have done right there on the spot would have been to kill him. And if he didn't kill him, he would have thrown him into a prison that was a, a dangy, like a, a horrible prison. But instead, what does Potiphar do? He puts him in the king's prison where it was like a low security prison. And it was probably actually a attached to Potiphar's house because Potiphar was the captain of the guard. And so there's this level where Potiphar was angry, and I think that he was angry at his wife because he knew his wife. 
And all of a sudden she's like, he came on to me. And he's probably thinking, no, he didn't. But here's the problem. If he didn't do anything, then it dishonors his family. So he has to do something. So what does he do? He throws Joseph in prison. So when Joseph thinks, hey, life is getting better, he's thrown in the prison. And guess what? As you're going to read the story, he's forgotten about. He's in prison for years. God is with him, but he's forgotten about by everyone else. And I want us to notice something. I don't want to rehash, but yet we see in Genesis 39, the first point we talked about is that we are to be faithful in the moments. And those moments include when no one is looking. Joseph was being hit on repeatedly by Potiphar's wife. Come, come be with me, come be with me, come be with me. And he's, no, no, no. And then he walks into the house and no one else is around. I mean, if he could have had his way, he could have had his way in that moment. But Joseph remained faithful to God even when no one was looking and he wasn't going to sin against God. Because here's the truth about sin. Sin thrives in darkness. Sin thrives in darkness. We just walked through and, and just... I'll, I'll tell you, I don't understand the difference between pandemic, epidemic, whatever it is. We just walked through one with COVID, but I would contend that there is a bigger pandemic, epidemic, whatever you want to call it, and that's called pornography. You think COVID was bad? Pornography is destroying families. It's destroying men and women alike. It's destroying our young people. You want to talk about a pandemic that's going on? It's a pandemic of pornography. And you know the truth about pornography? Pornography thrives in darkness. Pornography thrives when you think no one else knows what's going on. I'm not impacting anyone else. It thrives there. And sin loves to steal, kill, and destroy. The, the sin of gossip thrives when it's kept secret. When you don't think anyone else is going to know about it, and I'm just sharing this here with you, and, and so we gossip about somebody else. It thrives in secret. Lying thrives in secret. Friends, if, if this is where you are and, and you're dealing with this stuff, you want to know what sin hates? Sin hates when the light of the gospel shines into a situation and it's exposed and it's revealed. It cannot survive and thrive when it's exposed, when it's out in the open. If you're struggling, have a brother or sister come alongside of you who, who knows you. See, the, the fear of this is that if we become exposed, then guess what? Nobody will love me and everybody will reject me. And so I'm going to keep it secret, but I'm encouraging you, find those people in your life and in your world that can come alongside you who will know the full truth about you and love you in the midst of it. Sin thrives in secret, but yet it's in those moments when nobody's looking that God is going, I want you to be faithful. I want you to be faithful to me. Because as we walk faithfully with God, then it frees us. It frees us to come to this realization that when we walk by faith, faith allows God to define success. Faith allows God to define success. When you look at Joseph's story, especially just right here in this narrow 37 and 39, it doesn't appear as if Joseph is successful, does it? What would Joseph have on his resume? He's like, well, my brothers hated me. 
I was thrown into a pit. I got out. That was pretty awesome. Oh, then I was sold into slavery. I traveled down to Egypt and I, I worked, I was in Potiphar's house and I was actually number two in Potiphar's house. And then I was accused of rape and I was thrown in the prison. That's not a very good resume. When you look at that from the outside, we would go, Joseph, you are not very successful. And yet here's what's fascinating. Joseph through it all, walked by faith. And guess what? God looked at Joseph and was going, Joseph, your life, even though from the outside it doesn't look successful, we need to reorient who gets to define success. God's going, I get to define what is a successful life, not the world. You see, I grew up in a home where we would use this phrase a lot. It's going to work out. It'll work out. It'll work out. And is that fundamentally true? Yes. God will advance God's story and it will work out. But when I say it's going to work out, you know what I mean? It'll work out the way I want it to work out. And the way it's going to work out is when it benefits me. That's what I mean. And God's going, oh, no, 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 no. I get to determine what's successful. If you want to have a successful life in the eyes of the one that it really matters, walk faithfully in all the moments of your life. Are you going to screw up? Yes, but you come back to the God who loves you. You repent, you turn from it, and you walk faithfully in the moments. And God determines the success, not the world. And here's the thing. Ultimately, our faith in God grows as we trust that he sees the next step. Faith trusts that God sees the next step. Just like the question we asked at the beginning, God, do you really know what you're doing? You see, we need to zoom out from the Joseph story because I think Joseph probably asked that question a lot. We need to zoom out and go, God, what are you doing in the midst of Joseph? How are you advancing your ball forward? How is this happening? And if we zoom out, we remember back to Genesis 12. God promised Abraham, made a covenant with Abraham, and said, Abraham, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you descendants, and I'm going to make you a blessing to the whole world world, to the earth. And what happened? In Abraham, we see God fulfilling his promise. Abraham was about the land. And that's why when his son Isaac needed a bride, he said, Isaac, you can't leave. Essentially, we are hanging on to this land by a thread. God promised the land, and we see that covenant promise starting to be fulfilled in Abraham. In Jacob, we see descendants for, for a while, for a couple generations, it seemed like, God, are we really going to have a bunch of descendants? And then Jacob comes along, and it was a mess of a story that we saw last week. But yet we see the promise of God starting to be fulfilled as there's now 12 sons. And we start to go, okay, maybe this is going to work out. With Joseph, we see God beginning to fulfill the blessing piece. When I was in fifth grade, we had to we had to um, choose an instrument to play. And so when I was in fifth grade, I was kind of that annoying kid, and I'm like, I want to play the loudest instrument I can. So I chose this one. It's a trumpet, in case you didn't know. You're like... And so I chose to play the trumpet. And I played the trumpet from fifth grade to 12th grade, and some of you are wondering right now, is he going to play it? No, I'm not. 
because I get made fun of enough by enough people that I don't need to give another reason because I turn into a cherry tomato right when I play. My face blows. It's, yeah. So no, I'm not going to play it. But I played this instrument from fifth grade to 12th grade. And here's what would happen is as we would, as I played a long time, and, and when I was in high school, we would begin and we would learn new songs. And so what the band director would do is she would hand out the sheet music to the song, and we'd have to bring our instruments home, and we would have to practice. And some of you who know music, we'd have to practice with that god-awful metronome. If you want to know what a metronome is, it's an, it's an instrument of torture. It sits there and goes, tick, 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 tick. Why? Because you need to know how fast, what beat you're playing the song, and how fast you're going to play it. So that way, when we all come back together, we're all playing on the same page. And so you'd go home, and you'd sit in your room, and the neighbors hated it. Why? Because I'm sitting there, and I would have to practice. And there are times, as you're practicing your piece, guess what? It's terrible, because you're sitting there going, all I'm doing is going, but, but, but. But, but, and you're sitting there going, this is ridiculous. How does this, what is going on? All I'm doing is playing like these eighth notes consecutively for like six bars. This is dumb. I don't want to do this anymore. And then what happens? You come back together after a couple weeks and you should know your part at that point. You've practiced and you've been practicing those eight notes, but, 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 and you're doing it and you're like, this is dumb. But guess what? There's a composer who wrote these pieces and who had wrote the trumpet piece and he inserted those eighth notes. And, but he knows what the French horns are doing at that point and he knows what the flutes are doing at that point and the clarinets and the piccolos and he knows what the trombones are doing. He knows what the timpani player is doing on the drums. And so all of a sudden you come back and you take your little eighth note piece and you're going, I don't know how this is going to fit. And all of a sudden you come together and you're like, oh my gosh, somebody knew what they were doing. Faith trusts that God sees the next step. Faith goes, I'm going to play my part, and I don't know how it's going to fit into the whole, but it trusts that there is a great composer that has figured it all out. And God, with the story of Joseph, is going, Joseph, it doesn't make sense right now. I'm calling you to be faithful in a pit. I'm calling you to be faithful as you're traveling on a caravan down to Egypt. I'm calling you to be faithful in Potiphar's house. I'm calling you to be faithful in prison. Why? Because God is orchestrating something completely bigger. And Joseph is going, God, I don't get it. I don't understand how my part fits into the whole. And what does God do? God brings Joseph down to Egypt. He becomes the number two in the whole nation of Egypt. Why? Because the dreamer who was hated for it at the beginning knows how to interpret dreams. And he interprets a dream. He becomes number two in all of charge in all of Egypt. He's second in command under Pharaoh. And what happens, you're going to read about it this week, is that he knows that there's going to be a famine and he knows what to do. So he stores up all the grain when, there's, when it's good times. And when the famine comes, guess what happens? The whole world comes to Egypt, the center of the known world at that point, travels to Egypt. Why? Because Joseph, in his God-given wisdom, had made a plan. And now the world was being blessed through Joseph. And you know what happens? His brothers come. And his father comes. And the dream that he had at the very beginning, his brothers come and bow down. And they said, oh no, we're in trouble. 
You see, God was orchestrating the whole thing. And sometimes, friends, we don't know what part we're playing. It seems like we're just playing eighth notes over again and again and again. And you're going, I don't know how my part's fitting. And God's sitting there going, play your part. Play it faithfully. Keep going. Be faithful in the midst of it. Why? Because I see the next step. I see how it's all going to come together. So what do we do? What do we do with that this week? Here's some next steps for us. The first thing is this, and we're going to keep driving this home. Do the live it out section. It's in your bulletin. Do the live it out section. And here's the thing that you're sitting there. I, I had a lady who came up to me last week. She's like, Dave, I've been, I'm in my mid-60s, and I've been following Jesus for a long time, and I know the Bible, and, and I've been walking faithfully. And she goes, so I, I she, she kind of lives. She's like, I didn't think I need to live it out. And then she goes, so then I decided to try it because you guys have been, and she goes, can I tell you something? I never knew in all my years of following Jesus, I never knew that Abraham was remarried. She goes, I wouldn't have known that unless I participated in the live it out section. So was it like this moment that changed your life forever? No, but it was something that she went, I missed it. So do the live it out section. Here's the other thing I'm going to ask you to do. We're a word dependent church. We believe God's word speaks, and we focused in on a couple passages today. But I'm going to ask you to read fuller of the story, to read about J Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38. Read Genesis 37 through 41. I would even go a little bit further. I would read up to through when J Joseph reveals himself. Keep going. Read the story. Why? Because it's amazing to see how God was orchestrating the whole thing. Finally, Here's what we're going to do this morning is that we're going to ask God a question and we're going to give some time right now to ask God, where are you asking me to trust you right now? You see, the truth is, is that life is made up of many moments and some of the moments that some of you are in right now are very difficult and very hard moments. Some of you are on the top of mountaintops and things are great, but even in the midst, regardless of the moment, God is asking you to trust him Maybe you need to trust that he really does know what he is doing. So we're, I'm going to pray in just a moment as we head into this time of, of short reflection. And so after I pray, we're going to throw it off to venues. So venue pastors, you guys can have a time of reflection. And if you want to close that out, whatever you want to do in your venues. But here, we want to ask God, God, where are you asking me to trust you? So Father, in this moment, would you speak? Would you show us an area where we need to trust you?
that we have prayer teams that are up front that want to, if there's something that you're like, I just don't know what God's doing. Sometimes we need someone else, a brother or sister to come alongside us and to pray with us. And so I'd encourage you, we're going to sing a last song. And so during that time, come up, pray. But I can't think of a better way to end a service than to say, hey, listen, we have a God that no matter what moment you're in, he sees the next moment. And he sees the next moment. And he sees the next moment. And he's working all things out for our good and his glory. And that's what he's doing in the moment. So let's go ahead. Right now, we're going to stand up and we're going to sing about Christ alone, Cornerstone. So Father, thank you that you are the cornerstone, that you see the next steps. In Jesus' name, amen.